0: Hey! Yeah! on the barrel show. Coming to you from winter. Damn you, winter. Damn you! It's the on barrel show. It's a vintage baseball podcast. We talk to vintage baseball players and other people from Coast to Coast, Motor to Motor. We talk about baseball here. That's what we do, and we talk about so many other things that have nothing to do with baseball. It's almost hard to call this a baseball podcast. Sometimes. One day in the future we're going to talk to Paul Hunkley about his exciting lantern collection, and that's going to be a good time. Uh, let me bring in my co-host uh, Rudy Swamp Fox for you. Rudy, it's been a while.
1: Yes, it has. This is a delight. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever, and I'm so excited to be here. Uh, and 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 enjoying this this film so i can't wait to get into
0: this yeah i didn't enjoy the film but the the history is amazing so uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh rudy and i have had a bad start to the year as far as uh, members of our family we've both lost a pet within the last couple of weeks that sucks dude
1: it sucks a lot it does you but know, you know we have each other, and that's what matters. I'm still here with you.
0: Uh, so this being a movie discussion episode, this this does not this is not the official start to season four. But good news, everybody! Good news. Season four starts next week, and we're back. So interviews, uh, the sixty minute format interview. Uh, now th- I'm telling Rudy this for the first time, so Rudy, hold on tight. Uh and we're also doing the 30-minute warm-up that we started at the end of the season last year. That was a very uh, successful format, and now we're going to do that every other week because we'll be doing the game show every other week uh before we do the main episode. So uh, as long as we have contestants and we have enough contestants for the first three episodes, and we'll see how it goes uh, from there. But uh looking forward to... Season four. If you think there's somebody out there in the vintage baseball community uh, that deserves to be interviewed, has a lot that nobody knows about, a hidden gem, like the guy Aladdin. You know, he was what? What did they call him? He was a diamond in the rough. Aladdin. Rudy, sing Aladdin. Would you? Oh
1: yeah. Oh, I can show you a world that that Aladdin.
0: That was great. Thank you. Uh, now, let's bring in our guest before we start talking. Uh, when, we, when we came up with this subject matter, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm in, and this is the movie. He didn't even, he didn't give us a choice. He said, this is the movie, and, <laughs> and I'm in, and uh, we are happy to have him. It's Jeff Cougar Kozlowski from the Greenfield Village Lottie does, Jeff, how you doing this offseason?
2: Howdy, howdy. Doing all right. Having a had a warm day here in southeast Michigan. Here we we're in the end of the fifties, so got the got the itch to throw a baseball around. Wow! Did you? No, I didn't
0: have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> just, just an itch. Uh, love the warm days in the winter that makes everything messy. Um, mm-hmm. no my floors. The dogs go outside. They come in. It's a mess. I'm not a big fan uh 57 on wednesday up up here in the saginaw's uh what's your what's your uh high going to be down there in the the detroit area
2: it was about 58 uh today today we broke 60 nice yeah it was it was it was a nice day out had the had the windows down and you know, jam into some jamming into some classic rock here. Yeah, we're doing we're doing all right. It was Ariel
0: Speedwagon. Yeah. What was the song?
2: Uh Peace of Mind by Boston.
0: No, it wow. was Ariel Speedwagon as Ride the Wind. Uh Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Christopher Cross. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rudy, you getting this warm temperature down there in Columbus?
1: Yeah, today was uh, about the same. We are about, about 57. It's currently about 40, 47 degrees. So yeah, it was a sunny, beautiful day down here.
0: Is it, is it true that once the temperature gets over 55 that everybody riots in Columbus? or sparks a protest. <laughs> it, Doesn't it spark a protest of some sort? 55. I mean,
1: I, I, it, it definitely brings all the, the inside folk outside. Let's just say that. And then they, they don't know how to interact cause they've been inside for so long. So,
0: uh, so season four is starting out next week. We're going all year. We got all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk uh, about it next week as Rudy and I are going to be the warm up next week. Ooh, talking about season four, <laughs> easy, easy stuff. Uh, so let's get into the movie with Jeff. Uh, Jeff, we're going to start in the opening, but my question to you is: Why is this subject matter uh, so intriguing to you?
2: So, I think for me, uh, I I looked at the uh, the movie Eight Men Out, and uh, I think when I first kind of came about the movie and the book was right around in my in my uh, undergraduate. Days in the, at Eastern Michigan, and we were learning kind of the foundations about what is historical research and how you should and should not judge historical texts. Um, and the uh, the book on which Eight Men Out is is based uh, is was written in 1963. I mean, this is a
1: recording in progress.
2: Oh, what is it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, it was, sorry we'll we'll edit that in post-op no <laughs> um you know the <laughs> the, uh, the book was, was originally published in 1963 and uh you know there's there's so many things that when you read it you're like wow this is a great read it's such a it lends itself so much to the movie and then you watch the movie and you're like i can't believe this this happened but it actually did and it inspires more research and the more that you research the more you go wait a minute. No, it didn't. That's not how this worked. And so it's one of those things that's kind of like a nice gateway into a, a very controversial event and really a, a turning point in, in baseball history from the 1900s, 19-teens going into more of a quote-unquote live ball era of the of the
0: 20s. You sound way too smart for this podcast. Rudy, dumb it down. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Charlie
0: Sheen is in it. You're the best. 8 Men Out, 1988 PG-rated movie. It's one hour and 59 minutes long. It gets a 7.2 on the IMDb page. Uh, You know a lot of actors uh, from this movie, Uh, so you're going to be astounded at how bad this movie is. (laughs)
1: Well, it's a collection of like some of the best character actors of all time. I mean, if you, I, I was floored today when when I was rewatching it, and uh, Mr. Noodle from Sesame Street plays um, uh, the college kid. Um, oh God, I've already forgotten his name because I just see him as Mr. Noodle, and I was like, "Holy crap, it's Mr. Noodle from Sesame Street!"
0: I'm disturbed. Uh, this movie opens up in Chicago in 1919, uh, kids are yelling, Hey, we're going to the socks. Cause they got us some money and blah, blah, blah. And they're running down the street. And isn't it a time, isn't it a time when the kids could just leave the house and go do something because they can't do that anymore. Stupid world way to screw that up. Uh, and then you see the sports writers in the bot in the, uh, press box and they're all wearing, these straw boater hats, and I immediately went to Amazon and bought one.
2: <sighs> you look great
0: at <laughs> it. I can't wait to wear it, uh, Jeff. Uh, the first character we're going to talk about here is Charles Comiskey. Uh, tell me, tell me about Charles Comiskey, and also throw him out there where where you got your research from as far as the differences between the movie. Uh, and reality, I guess.
2: Sure. The, so a a great resource for anybody who's who's looking into a great, easily digestible resource there is, is through Sabre. Um, Sabre has in a sense like an entire department dedicated to, uh, the scandal and, you know, all things associated with it. Uh, the, the big book, uh, that I would, I would definitely recommend, um, for uh for anybody who wants to get into like a, a real on you know deep dive in it. Um let me just make sure I got. Um so by a guy named Gene Carney, an author named Gene Carney, his book called Burying the Black Sox. And uh Carney, when he gets into it, the first thing he basically jumps out in the introduction is. So forget what you read in Elliot Asanoff's book. And Asanoff wrote the original eight men. Now he was like, forget what you said or forget what he wrote because so much has changed from 1963 when it was originally written up till uh, the 20 teens. And a lot of what he's, he gets into is uh, you know trying to correct a lot of the errors that you'll see in the movie while at the same time starting to put some of the blame on Charlie Comiskey for the cover up and why this was uh, so washed over. So, you know, what Comiskey is trying to do. I, you know, they really, the, the movie really tries to paint Comiskey as you know, this, you know, out of date, um, you know, this, this frugal fossil of a man uh when in reality i would i would venture to say that he's not too terribly dissimilar from a lot of other owners at the time who were trying to collect every bit of money that they could while at the same time not paying their players uh perhaps their due especially when you think about today and how much players make um you know it 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 really kind of does you know does a disservice to uh the players and what they could be doing when, when there's a lot of, lot of things to kind of dig down. So definitely check out Saber and all the things that they've pulled up. Um, And Gene Carney's book is just, is just one of many that has been, uh, has been written on. There's another one called red legs and black socks that uh, tells a little bit about it from the Cincinnati perspective too, but.
0: Oh, that's a, that's interesting, right there, Rudy. Do you know uh, Clifton James, the gentleman who plays Charles Comiskey in this movie, from anything?
1: Uh, yeah, he actually is a, another character actor. Many people may know him. His resume is quite extensive. Um, he's in Cool Hand Luke. He's in Superman Two. Um, what are some other? Uh, he 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 always plays like. The the old curmudgeon. He's kind of like that character actor. So he has been in uh quite a number of things. That P- I mean, he wasn't you know. I'm I'm scrolling through his IMDb right now. If you I get down there, from... if you get
0: down there, Rudy, you're going to see that he was in an episode of the A Team, Dukes of Hazard, and uh, and the Fall Guy.
1: He he did a lot of TV. He did.
2: He did. He did a ton of TV. Can I can I jump in with my Clifton James trivia? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Clifton James is, was one of the only uh, actors who had a uh, who had a recurring role in James Bond movies. Uh, he played um, Sheriff J. W. Pepper. In uh, *Live and Let Die*, and then somehow magically ends up in Southeast Asia in the 1970s in *The Man with the Golden Gun*. It's like besides the besides the Bond characters and the MI6 people, it's like him, him one random girlfriend, and then *Jaws* like are the only ones who have reprised a role. That's
0: hilarious. So on to the Bond movies. I'd never seen any of the Bond movies, so I started at number one and started working my Gosh. way up. And then uh, Mr. Connery left the franchise and they had uh who uh, Jeff, you might know this, the gentleman who was only James Bond in one movie. What was his name? George Lazenby. He that movie was awful. Uh, and it was shot <laughs> it was shot really weird compared to all the other Bond movies. Uh, they tried to do something with the action scenes and everything in it. I mean, I guess for its time, maybe it was a little something, something. But anyway, he never came back. It was, and... Go ahead. you
2: know, Bond movies are like that's if 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 not baseball. Like I love the Bond series, absolutely love the Bond series, and George Lazenby is a guy who kind of like talks his way into the role. Like when remember when people lost their mind because Daniel Craig was blonde? Yeah, George Lazenby was Australian.
1: <laughs> he's not
2: he's not, not even from the continent and he talked. basically talked his way on had a three movie deal and after uh, on her majesty's secret service in 1969 his friend said hey what are the what are the other big movies around here you got easy rider and you got shaft okay the anti-hero james bond is not gonna make it you need to get out now and he got out and uh they were like you got to bring Connery back. You have to do whatever it takes, bring Connery back. Wow. So they got him, they paid him like $5 million, which was unheard of at that time. He's like, I'm doing this one and then I'm out. <laughs> and then after that they got Roger Moore and he was there until the mid eighties. Uh,
0: how did we not know about all of this James Bond knowledge that you have all the times that we've talked? Oh, we, we could have been hitting James was... Bond. That's a insane! insane oh, man. Yeah. I, I love the Bond series. Love, My favorite Bond episode. moment is when Elizabeth Hurley's a Fembot. Okay, as we go on, we find out that uh, in the movie, they... they uh, where's where's
2: the delete button? Where's the wow. meeting? They, uh,
0: wow. they deal with it. Uh, they make a reference to how awesome Babe Ruth is in this movie. Jeff, that's not historically accurate, right? Because in 1919, he's not really that big of a deal yet. Um,
2: He's... I mean it's it's clear he's going to be very good um but the like the the game changing um you know showpiece of baseball that will help get people to stop thinking that baseball is now totally corrupt he's not there yet so uh yeah they're they're a little bit early for that but they're definitely foreshadowing
0: All right we're going to do a uh, uh through most of the characters and we're going to bring up some later I'm just going to name off the character. Jeff is going to give you some history of that character, and then Rudy's going to give you something off his IMDb. Let's see how this works out. Ready. Kid Gleason, played by John Mahoney. Jeff, who is Kid Gleason?
2: So Kid Gleason is the manager, um, the former pitcher. I'm going to pull up my notes here because I, I got them somewhere. Um, Gleason is very much like one of the boys um he's very well liked very well respected among the team um he got the nickname kid because of he always said that he had this very happy persona and this very happy mentality here uh which kind of goes into the point of like us as vintage baseball players and how we have nicknames there it is um we all have these nicknames here in the 1860s it might not have been as often but when you look at the white Sox roster and the number of nicknames that you have between kid and chick and swede and shoeless joe and happy and buck like like everybody has a nickname it seems um kid gleason was one um he was like I said, a former former ball player uh, passed away in in 1933, but, but it just always seemed like he had a very you know exuberant feeling about how the game was.
0: Uh, Rudy, give me one hey. thing from his IMDb, the big one. Come Whatever on, it,
1: everyone. We all know John Mahoney will always be Martin Crane Frazier's dad. Let's, let's me.
0: Okay, I, this is what I was hoping for. So yes, he was in Frazier, and he's very popular for that. But I know, uh, I know John Mahoney from a Bruce Willis vehicle by the name of Striking Distance, a movie p- made popular by a Sarah Jessica Parker body double. Uh, An excellent movie. If you haven't seen this Bruce Willis vehicle, I suggest that you do. Uh, It's got a decent soundtrack and Timothy Busfield's in it. And he was in the field of dreams. So don't argue with me. Next character. Swede Riceberg is played by uh, Don Harvey. Uh, What about Swede, Jeff?
2: So Swede is the, he's the shortstop. Um, He is, very often portrayed as the uh like the co-conspirator he's the guy who you know he's in it just as much as uh, chick Gandal is who i'm sure we're gonna uh mention him um but he in reality like he's he's a very i think saber describes him as being a a very excited participant but certainly not somebody who has like the deep in-depth knowledge of that, but he's the shortstop. And fun fact uh, of the eight men that are in the eight men out, he lives the longest. He lives until uh,
0: 1975. Wow. Uh, Rudy.
2: I mean, come
1: on. This is uh he's a, uh, you know him. Uh, he's in everything he's been in the blacklist he's been on yellowstone he's been in better call Saul he wasn't taken three um he uh, a journeyman actor lots of really great credits he has worked across the board from uh television shows that are still running to television shows that have long since uh gone and and movies that are still out today and and producing new stuff
0: yes Don Harvey is uh uh not joining us on this podcast. And uh, he played a man <laughs> with a lantern in the movie Life with Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. So that was his credit in that movie. <laughs> but Rudy, you disappoint me as you forgot, as you did not see, you did not see it pop up on his IMDb. As Don Harvey was in the Bruce Willis vehicle, Die Hard 2, he was one of the terrorists. Okay, I suggest you don't watch <laughs> Die Hard 2. Uh, <laughs> go watch Die Hard and skip right to Die Hard 3 and then forget about 2, 4, and 5 and then go back and watch 1 and 3 again then a 2, then a 4, skip 5 again then a 1, 2, 3, then a 1, 2, 3, 4 then a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and that was my homage to friends Um, the, n- <laughs> the next character is Chick gandle uh played by michael rooker chick gandle jeff
2: so chick gandle is the first baseman um he's kind of portrayed and i think accurately enough so as kind of the the leader um he's of the players he's probably the one that's deepest into it Uh, and that seems to be validated kind of all around here uh he plays the night there he's played with White Sox organization he plays up through 1919 of the eight players and this is one of the weird parts about the movie is that there's a kind of a hiccup in the timing because the World Series ends in 1919 and then it looks like there's trial right after. The truth of it is there's a 1920 season where all the White Sox are still playing uh, with the exception of Chick Gandle Gandil rejected his contract. Uh, Comiskey offered him a contract. Uh, Gandle, did not want it thought it wasn't enough money and he moved back to California um but he was a good first baseman now there were, there were people that were saying that Gandel is so good that he didn't need a glove to play first base and i heard that and went yeah so <laughs> i know a lot of people who aren't who are good enough to play first base without a glove so uh but yeah he's uh he's kind of the the ring leader and i think accurately enough so
0: Rudy, Rudy.
2: well,
1: ladies (laughs) and gentlemen, everyone knows Michael Rucker from the 2002 Bruce Willis vehicle (laughs) corrective measures. Correct. Or, or you might recognize him as a uh, Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxy. But I mean, a lot of people know him from his, the Bruce Willis movie that came out last year, Corrective Measures.
0: Uh, also played I, I, Merle I, I, on The Walking Dead, loses his hand. Sad story. Uh, also plays Rowdy Burns in Days of Thunder. That's right. Uh, great movie. Uh, Jeff, tell everybody to go watch Days of Thunder.
2: Um, now, I, I don't know if I've ever told you that I'm actually also a big NASCAR fan, uh, but uh, I mean, it's, it's fine. If you're looking for a NASCAR movie, if you're, you'd see either that or Talladega nights, but I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. That's how I knew. I knew him from, from that or from mall rats. Cause mall rats was a new <laughs> generation.
0: Robert um, Duvall is really good in days of thunder. Oh yeah. oh yeah, I, I there's, love there's,
2: it. There's all kinds of terminology from that movie that NASCAR fans still use. The whole Rubbin's racing," yeah, Harry. Racin'. Like it is racing. Still comes
0: up every. But so well. is racing. It's
2: racing, Harry.
0: Uh, Buck Weaver is played by John Cusack in this movie. Uh, he plays the third baseman. What do you got on Buck? Uh, so, uh, yeah,
2: Buck Weaver is a. He's he's one of the more questionable, um, one of the more questionable people affiliated with uh, with kind of the, the eight men out, so to speak. Um, in that he is aware that the meetings are taking place. He's aware that there is something going on. Uh, but when is told like, "Hey, you're you're going to have to lose on purpose," uh, he's not does not want to do that at all. And Buck Weaver really like goes to his grave arguing for his reinstatement just to be able to to clear his name from that so um he is he is present you know he is you know knows of what's going on he is kind of as they say considered one of the boys uh but he's a guy that is not willing to to lose but he because he knows that it's going on that's how uh judge landis is able to get him
0: rudy
1: well, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, John Cusack, his resume is far and wide and people are going to know him as Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything or or one of the other many uh, movies, uh, my favorite rom-com, Serendipity. But I feel like the majority of people, Barrel Roller, are going to know John Cusack from his 2014 vehicle with Bruce Willis called The Prince. <laughs>
0: Yes, Rudy, uh, you've nailed it once again. Uh, you can also see Jack Cusack uh, in things such as Con Air, Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, of course, a classic. Now, the interesting thing, uh, he was in the movie 2012 and also in a movie called 1408, and if you add those two numbers up, you get 3,420. Okay, the next, uh, the next player is Eddie Collins. <laughs> And he is uh, – oh, okay. So this is one of my favorites. I know you guys are going to laugh at that, but it's Bill Irwin. Uh, Ir- Irwin, I'm sorry. It's Bill Irwin. Yeah. He plays Eddie Collins. Uh, Jeff, what do you got on Eddie Collins?
2: Uh, Collins is, is the second baseman. Uh, he is – I don't know if I mentioned Buck Weaver is the third baseman, but Eddie Collins is the second baseman. Uh, he was uh, acquired in a, in a deal – to be, to be brought in. And what I don't want to say was not really liked, but he just was, was a guy that didn't really fit in with the rest of the team. Uh, Good player uh, in the baseball hall of fame, uh, but was just not because he was college educated. uh, He was not seen as somebody who really fit in. This is a, this is a team that is very, they are said to be mixed um or they're said to you know they're all on the same side comiskey loves them because they they eat together they drink together you know everything together and like the very first stark thing that you see is like collins and risberg just chirping at each other or uh risberg and gandall are chirping at at collins and you know, Collins, this has a far more dignified response to him, but yeah, he's the second baseman baseball hall of famer and uh, is probably, and I think is also the highest paid member of the team next to maybe Jackson and Seacott Rudy. Bill Irwin is
1: a a national treasure in the uh, theater. damn right. uh, He is is an accomplished uh, stage actor uh, also known as a an, a an accomplished and iconic movement actor, uh, you might uh, rec- recognize Bill Irwin from hits like the "Don't Bobby McFerrin Don't Worry Be Happy" music video. Mm, um, good pull. And and I definitely forgot Bill Irwin. He's Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street. <laughs> He's Mr. Noodle. Okay, so. And and he's been in countless things. Lady in the Water. Uh, um,
0: he has been uh, in... Uh, been countless. He was the dad in The Grinch Who Saves Christmas uh, with Jim yep. Carrey. He yep. was in two of my favorite movies of all time. And we're going to talk about one of them in the extra session at the end, but uh, that would be My Blue Heaven with Steve Martin. He was in that movie, and it's exceptional. But I... First found Bill Irwin in a 1980 classic with Robin Williams. Robin Williams' first movie, Popeye. Oh, so good. Yes. So good. You know that that little village. Jeff, have you ever seen Popeye with Robin Williams?
2: Yes. Yeah, it's been a minute, but yeah.
0: That little village they built for that still exists. They just left it there, and it's still there. And one day, I'll never be there. <laughs> Eddie Seacott is played by uh, David Stratheran, uh, who is a very well-accomplished character actor. Uh, but what do we know about Eddie Seacott and the whole thing, Jeff?
2: So Eddie Seacott, uh, he's, for us in southeast Michigan, here is a local boy. He actually owned a farm in Livonia. Uh, so he's he's got some local ties uh, after his playing career was done. He has a job at Ford Motor Company. Uh, legend has it he's one of the thugs that uh, goes to break up one of the strikes that Henry Ford wanted to put down. Uh, but as a ball player, he's, he easily would have been a Hall of Fame pitcher as he's not only as one of the ace of the times, uh, but of, of how he's able to use both his – his knuckleball uh as well as a pitch that he calls the shine ball uh, this is a time where applying foreign substances to a ball is not you know illegal uh, you've,
0: you've it's, never it's done that right jeff you've never done that right
2: uh, when, I'm, when i'm trying to get a little bit of break on the ball put a little jalapeno the nose. that was the last
0: episode jeff you missed it by one sorry
2: <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, you know, but he's, he's getting up in age there. They definitely portray him as being older and he's got a sore arm and whatnot. He does play the very next season though. So he's, he's a part of the 1920, uh, 1920 team, but uh, yeah, he's there. There is concern about his age, but there's a great line there where they, the writers are talking about it and they say, are they, do they think Seacott's got a sore arm? The other writer goes, see, Cod's had a sore arm for 10 years. <laughs> and so, yeah, but he's uh, he's the ace. He's the the ace pitcher on the squad.
0: Uh, Rudy, David Stratherin.
1: You, you said it, uh, character actor galore. Uh, if you need a, 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 someone to portray a character that is in the government or has ties to government agencies, that is your man, you might recognize him from his line, oh, my God. <laughs> That's Jason Bourne. Uh, he's also plays an admiral in uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, and I only shout that out because my uh, my older brother Ian talked about how he was watching that yesterday. So um, the second I saw him, I was like, oh, hey, I know him from everything. He's a He's an amazing actor.
0: Also, uh, the principal of or the uh, Dean of Marshall University, and we are Marshall? Uh, also in a movie called Fracture with Ryan Gosling and Anthony Hopkins, which is really good. Put that on your list if you haven't seen it. And uh, also the uh, owner of the team in a league of their own, another little baseball ditty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ira
2: Lowenstein. Yeah, he's the guy that keeps the – that's how I've, I first met him. He's Ira Lowenstein. He's, I think he's one of three three actors in this movie that have, that would go on to play other baseball movies. Oh, yeah, down the line,
0: great great segue, Jeff. As Hap Felsh is played by Charlie Sheen, whose very next movie he makes after this is Major League. Uh, tell us about Hap Felsh.
2: So, yeah, Happy Felsh is kind of like Kid Gleason, he was had a very like happy personality, he was an extra exuberant guy, uh, known to leave everything out on the field. So, the kind of the opening sequence where you're introduced to him is him. Catching a fly ball over his shoulder and then running headlong into a wall, and then coming up and they say, "Geez, happy, save it, will you?" And he goes, "Save it for what?" Um, so yeah, he. he although I, I will say, like kind of incorrectly, like when they get later on in the movie, they they start talking about that he he gives he gives up everything, sitting at the bar yelling it out, and that's not actually true. So he's he's happy, but he's not you know, that happy, but, uh, but solid ball player, um, you know, an overly excitable guy, uh, was happy felt.
0: Uh, Rudy, Charlie Sheen.
2: I mean, you might
1: recognize Charlie Sheen from, um, Lucas, Stephen Kings, the Rafe. Um, he played the, the juvenile delinquent in Ferris Bueller's day off. He gets to make out with Jennifer gray. Um, I mean, he really didn't do much after those things. So, (laughs) I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's also, you know, he's, he's winning at everything.
0: So, yeah, I know him from hot shots, hot shots, part D uh, I also know him from having tiger blood winning and liking prostitutes. Here we go. Uh, we're going to bring up a couple of men at work, the the movie
2: with him and Emilio Estevez as garbage men. And he, you know, who else was in that movie,
0: Jeff? Uh, Kevin Mench's really good friend, Keith David. <laughs> Best
2: friend,
1: Keith David.
0: <laughs> Call back Everybody needs to listen to the Kevin Mench episode. Uh, we're going to run into a couple of more characters as we go, but I wanted to get most of them out of the way uh, as we go down this movie in order. And the first thing I noticed here is that they were throwing the gloves to the positions, Jeff, because they were still sharing gloves. When did this stop and do you have any information about this?
2: So the, the, the glove throw, you know, tossing the glove down, um, yeah, it's, it's either a, a sharing of the glove or, I mean, there's, just, there's not any rule that says you had to bring it back. And so a lot of players would, in fact, leave it on the field somewhere. To which my first thought was, well, shoot, if I see the other guy's glove there, I'm kicking dirt in it. You know, I'm filling it with whatever I possibly can. <laughs> Which is evidently what they would do. So they're so as they're you know just kind of tossing the glove you know to the side there. I'm like yeah, and that's apparently what prompted the change is that too many people were messing with the glove. So so when you see guys that are pulling their gloves off, just kind of tossing them to the side or tossing them into foul territory or keeping them behind, it kind of became you know potential obstructionary thing, uh, especially if players have their own gloves. So it was wasn't until about like the God, the latter part of the 20th century that it was actually made a rule that you have to take your glove in with you.
0: Uh, this is where we first get a hint of the conspiracy that's about to take place because we have Christopher Lloyd uh, from he's Jim from taxi know and uh, from back to the future. And he is conspiring with his partner, the guy who stole the car from Ferris Bueller from the parking garage and went for a joy ride. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, something's up with this. Uh, uh, now it gets a little muddy for me, Jeff. I'm not going to lie because it seems like there's two conspiracies that start out as two conspiracies and then they kind of merge sort of kind of and, uh, and, and, and I kind of lose track of which one is which, but tell us about, about these two.
2: Yeah, so you've got Christopher Lloyd, who plays uh, Sleepy Bill Burns, who's a former pitcher, uh, former pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, in fact. Um, and the other guy, uh, Billy Maharg. Uh, Maharg, spelled M-A-H-A-R-G. And that got a lot of people thinking, like, Maharg is a strange last name, but when you spell it backwards, it's Graham. And so there's a lot of thought on there that uh, Billy Maharg, the the guy who stole the car in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, that Maharg is actually a a pseudonym. His name is actually Graham. And there's like a lot of things in here. There's some gray area that goes on. But um, yeah, they have they have this idea of you know of could it actually be done? Meanwhile, what's kind of thought of agreed upon that chick Gandle is going to this other guy sport sullivan uh the guy in the white the the big man in boston um he's pitching this idea when they're talking together yeah it starts as two and then when arnold rothstein may or may not have gotten involved um then they kind of use graham or graham they use maharg and Sleepy Bill Burns is kind of the go between for Arnold Rothstein until game 3 when the White Sox really just trick everybody they win uh they win game 3 and that's it Burns and Maharg lose everything and they're pretty well out of it by this point
0: uh Rudy Christopher Lloyd
1: Yeah I mean let's I mean Christopher Lloyd has a a long and story career. You might, everybody, you know, Doc Brown. Um, we're talking... Um, LB. I can't think of the villain's name from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um,
2: Doom, Judge Doom.
1: Judge Doom, there it is. I mean, he he also, he. you know, a lot of people don't re- realize this. He's a producer for uh, a modern family. Like, so he was one of the producers for the entire show, Modern Family. He... Um, He's a, I mean, Uncle Fester. Let's, I mean, Adam's family. I I mean, everybody's loving on Wednesday and and Fred Armiston, who did an amazing job. But I think Fester will always be uh, Christopher Lloyd to me. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's an amazing person, actor.
0: Obviously goes down in history because of the Bruce Willis vehicle, Back to the Future. How is Back to the Future a Bruce Willis vehicle? Because realistically, if you had a time machine, you'd go back and make that a Bruce Willis movie. We move on as we finally come across Joe Jackson. Now, here's where I have a problem with the movie. Uh, I'm sure Rudy anticipated me having issues. Joe Jackson's played by D.B. Sweeney. Joe Jackson is not in this movie very much. Uh, He's in it more in the last 10 minutes than he is in the whole movie up until then. D.B. Sweeney's terrible as Joe Jackson gives him nothing. They treat him like he's an idiot. The fans... The writers. Uh, I don't know anything about Joe Jackson in real life. And that's why Jeff's here. Jeff, tell us about Shoeless Joe Jackson as it pertains to this movie.
2: Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, like, they, you're right. You know, they don't do, they don't do that great a job with it. Unfortunately, it's not really it's, it's hard to put a fault on that. Um, There's a really good book by uh, Tim Hornbaker, who's written a lot on the subject and it's called fall from grace. um, Which is kind of a, a Joe Jackson biography. Jackson is like a guy who is really, really good at what you need him to be at. But the moment you don't need him anymore, you absolutely tear into him because he's such an easy target. So it's it's really unfortunate how he comes off. Like he is, without question, he's the best best player on the team, the best hitter on the team, bar none, no question. Many of the players, uh, you know, would not have wanted to be a part of it if Jackson was not on board. Um, and so his portrayal in the movie, you know, they there's the scene right at the very beginning where, you know, he says, hey, professor, can you spell cats? And he turns around and says, hey, mister, can you spell shit? Um, the, uh, the little bit on that is, you know, details, details. He actually, they say it to him before. Then he smokes this triple. He gets on third. He yells at, he goes, hey, can you spell triple? Uh, and he yells that to the, the visiting crowd. They, like I said, people think he is just dumb. They think because he is illiterate to educate Jackson when he was young would have been considered a luxury uh so Jackson's family was not well off and so they they did not educate him he so he he had his wife read most important documents to him they show that in the beginning uh where his wife is like reading him the story of the White Sox uh uh winning the pennant and he's just like listening to her and watching her. Like, yeah, he's, he's a very devoted husband. Um, there's, there's rumors of an affair. There's, uh, he goes out on tour, uh, like a vaudeville act. A lot of ballplayers would kind of use their fame in the off season to, to do vaudeville. Um, he, uh, you know, he wins the world series with him in 17. Then the next year he's drafted and is set to go to the war. But ends up getting a job in like a shipbuilding uh, for a shipbuilding company, and everybody goes off on him because he's they considered him a draft dodger. I'm like this guy is your best player, and you're just absolutely ripping this poor dude. And so yeah, they they make him look dumb and they make him look ignorant. You gotta feel like there's definitely people taking advantage of him. Um, Carney writes about that when it comes to the confessions. Uh, that he's being, you know, they're basically taking advantage of him because he doesn't know what he's doing or what's going on. He just doesn't want to be thought of as stupid. And as a result, people take advantage of him a lot. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a sad story with Jackson. Just they take advantage of the
0: poor guy to, to no end. Rudy, D.B. Sweeney.
1: D.B. Sweeney uh, has, uh, you know, he has a uh, bit parts here and there um you i recognize db sweeney from uh his early 90s work and mainly the 1992 uh movie that my second favorite movie about figure skating the cutting edge and uh played doug dorsey and uh he i mean let's be honest he uh, from the research i did db sweeney right-handed suggested that they film in reverse like in pride of the yankees so he didn't have to learn how to hit left-handed and then spent some time with a a single a club to learn how to uh, bat left-handed so i mean anybody that's willing to do that work i admire so
0: you also know db sweeney from his work as getting abducted in fire in the sky and of course his fine work on this one episode of spencer for hire Uh, next character is lefty Williams being played by James Reed. Uh, he is, I believe the number two starter on the white Sox. Jeff, what do you got about lefty? Yeah,
2: he is the, he's the number two guy. Um, he, he and, and Joe Jackson are actually very good friends. Uh, they're both Southern guys. And so, uh, Jackson really looks to Williams as his, you know, as the guy who's going to, to help him through and to be able to to help out, they travel together, they talk together. Um, they were talking about going into business uh, together in, the, in, in their off times and their off seasons. Um, but yeah, he's, he's one of the, he actually, so he loses three of the games uh, in the World Series which at that point was, an, was a nine game series. I don't know if that's going to be talked about later in the show, but I mentioned that he loses three games because it was up until 1981, a major league record that he regrettably held. How many of them were honest losses is, is quite another thing, but yeah, Lefty Williams, number two starter and um, a very good friend of Joe Jackson because of their Southern roots.
0: Well, let's talk about it right now. Was it a best of nine series?
2: It was. Um,
0: Okay. We talked about you know, the, it. So the kids are yelling <laughs>
2: Wait, question. <laughs> All right. Go yeah, ahead. Jeff. It was a, no, yeah, it was, it was, they, they was going to be a three-year experiment uh, to, to try to recoup some money, which is another reason why there was thoughts that there was, there's gambling and, you know, players not playing on the honest because, you know, what's the point of having a best of nine series if a team wins five to nothing you know, you want it to go beyond the normal seven games. So there is thought in that there, but yeah, it was a three-year experiment because they wanted to recoup some money that they were not making during world war one.
0: Uh, they got kids yelling from the stands at about this part in the movie. Whoopie. They're actually yelling. Whoopie. Whoopie. So that's a thing and annoying. Also, somebody says, go piss up a rope which I looked up, which is the equivalent of Go Fly a Kite, and also did not come into the lexicon of talking until the 1950s, so that must be inaccurate. Uh, I also once used soap on a rope, so that was interesting. Uh, That brings us to this character that uh, Jeff seemed to be the most excited about for some reason. Uh, He's a character by the name of... (laughs) Uh, He's a character by the name of Ray shock, the catcher. I went to middle school with a guy by the name of Roy shock, no relation. Uh, And he's played by a guy by the name of Gordon Clapp. What do you got on Ray shock? Jeff.
2: Ray shock is the, he's the catcher and uh, you know, a a baseball hall of famer uh, in a funny little side story here. He has a lifetime batting average of 253. That is the lowest batting average for any positional player in the hall of fame. That said, the man is an absolute pioneer in the catcher position. Uh, Anytime. If you think of a catcher and you think of somebody who is agile of, you know, is a good athlete. Thank you. Ray Schalk is really the guy that they should be looking toward here. Um, He's, and this is still kind of up in the air, but he caught four no-hitters, which if they actually call it four no-hitters, because one of them is under question, he would own the major league record for having caught the most no-hitters. He, uh, what is it? I think he holds like the the record for most double plays by a catcher. Um, He's considered one of the first catchers to actually back up first base on an infield throw, um, he's just he's a really really solid sound defensive catcher and he's uh, one of the guys who really puts a lot of emphasis on weight training and being in good physical shape because if you look towards the end of the movie when they interview him about the the fix he's at a gym with uh, with medicine ball training and that's because Shalk really did really stress that he was a you know a good in good physical conditioning there.
0: Rudy Gordon Clapp.
1: Gordon Clapp, I mean, uh, accomplished television actor, Chicago Fire, Elementary, uh, Night Court. But the thing that popped out on his IMDb page that I love the most, he played Philip Beamer in 1990 in an episode of Cop Rock. That's right. <laughs> Cop Rock. I love that show.
0: Apparently he had some kind of career with NYPD Blue. That was like the big thing in his life. And also, who can forget that one episode of The Wonder Years he was on? So uh, the White Sox they win the pennant. They come into the lo- to the locker room area and they're all excited. They have won, and I think a lot of them. This is where the, where they start giving you the narrative that the players start making decisions based on the fact that Comiskey's cheap. And uh, so their bonus that they thought was going to be in Dead Presidents ends up being in Flat Champagne, which from what I uh, understood in some of my reading uh, is an actual story but two years earlier than this. Happened in like 1917 or something. So uh Jeff, what do you have on this uh Comiskey being a cheapskate stuff here?
2: Uh yeah, he's the the that's a yeah, the 1917 story that I, I forgot who said it, I don't know if it was Gandal or or not, but uh yeah, there's the talk about they were really surprised because he sprung for a case of champagne uh, for for the team. But a lot of times when you talk to some of the players years after, some of the stories and details get kind of fudged. But yeah, it's kind of agreed upon in the 1917 year. Um, but yeah, I mean the the it really makes for it an easy uh, antagonist uh, to really kind of hate Comiskey because he appears so cheap. Um, there's the the local legend of you know where the Black Sox name comes from, and that it is a you know not only because they played dirty baseball, but because they themselves were in fact dirty. Uh, that comiskey would not have their uniforms laundered that was one of the legends and so their socks which were supposed to be white were usually gray or uh, potentially depending upon how uh, you know if the guys got their own laundry service done because sometimes uh, they they wouldn't like out of protest they would have their just go out there in a dirty uniform Um, he he may not be the you know the the most spendthrift guy uh to the players but when it came to the writers like who he's he spent on the writers uh the off the kind of the opening sequences the writers are going in and there's you know drinks that are all laid out for them and comiskey knew like if i take care of the writers the writers are going to take care of me uh so even though he in the movie he's not portrayed as being a, a guy who spends a lot of money on his players, but you know, to the, to the writers. Yeah. He took good care of the writers.
0: Uh, there's a gentleman in the stands. He's starting to clean the stands after the game. And uh, uh, some of the writers are talking to him and he says, it's the best white folks team he's ever seen. The 1919 white Sox were an accomplished baseball team. Some thought the best of the era. how, this is an opinion piece, right here, Jeff. How would they have stacked up against a Negro League team?
2: Boy, it's it's hard. I mean, well, first of all, I mean to be fair, the Negro Leagues don't really start start until nineteen twenty, so you got a, a year separation there. But um, it's it, boy. It,
0: Are the Negro Leagues I mean, like, playing by the same exact rule set? You said they started nineteen twenty. Are they playing nineteen nineteen baseball rules? Or did they do their own thing?
2: Both, of uh, you know, I mean, they the rules. I think are comparable enough. Where, if you look at statistics from you know the, the various Negro League teams, that I think they would be you know in the in the same category. I think any time you say that, you know all the you know this you know, their, their totals don't count because it was the Negro leagues and the talent wasn't as good It it's smacks of smacks of a little bigotry uh, versus, you know, actually saying like, Oh, all the the best players are in the white league. Like, I don't know about that. I think Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige would have something to say about that. Um, But I mean, there, there's enough to me to suggest that you could compare them to me, it's like, it's, it's two different games. The, uh, a lot of the times the Negro league style was based more on speed and hit and runs and, uh, you know, utilizing advantages like that. So, uh, whereas in the, the white leagues, you're starting to see, you know, the, the rise of Babe Ruth and chicks dig the long ball sort of thing, not to say that there, there weren't long ball hitters, but in the, in the Negro leagues, cause again, there's Josh Gibson, um, but you see a lot more of an emphasis on speed and steals and things like that in the Negro League. So I think it'd be a, it'd be a really good game. That would be one that you know I I, I hate the fact that we have been deprived of seeing anything of the sort like that.
0: Uh, we move on to the, there's a celebration at the bar. There's a lot more of the. Stru- straw boater hats that's where i actually hit purchase on amazon uh then we run across fred mcmullen who's played by perry lang uh fred mcmullen jeff
2: <laughs> freddy yeah the uh, it's got the the defined butt of a bench warmer if sweet Rizberg had ever seen one um <laughs> him uh, mcmullen and Rizberg are, are good friends um and McMullen is himself, you know, basically a utility infielder, you know, at a on a team full of Hall of Famers. There's not really any space for McMullen on this. He, in the entire World Series, he has who at-bats in, in the eight games. He has all of two at-bats there. Uh, but it was said that where he made himself valuable was about uh, opposing pitchers and what they did and what they threw and whatnot. So. He provide he's kind of the intel guy, so yeah, he's a not exactly a big time player for the nineteen nineteen team, but you know just so happens to be in the right place, at the right time, with the right friends.
0: Rudy, what you got on Perry Lang?
1: I mean, Perry Lang. Um, I actually saw Perry Lang in the Dolph Lundgren Men of War movie, which was a a classic nineteen ninety four hit. Uh, he did, you know, He once again, a lot of these guys, like we said, character actors, because character actors are so diverse and they have such a kind of blank canvas as a face where they can be multiple things over different mediums. A lot of these people go into television. He was on The Commission, NYPD Blue, Nash Bridges. So definitely got a lot of work uh, as a as a TV actor. <sighs>
0: also on mash, but who can forget that episode of him playing bartender on NYPD blue. Then we come across sport Sullivan, uh, played by Kevin Ty, great character actor, Kevin Ty. but sport Sullivan, part of the conspiracy, Jeff, what do you got on Mr. Sullivan? So
2: Sullivan, you know, as he describes himself in the movie, like a big man in Boston, um, he's a he's kind of he's kind of on the same level actually no he's a little bit above sleepy bill burns and christopher lloyd's character but he's not not nearly at arnold rothstein's level um he's a guy who would often go around look at some of the players asks ask stuff about them you know hey there's a well so and so doing there how's his arm just to try to like see if he could get some kind of insider information and then place his bets accordingly. So he does pretty well for himself uh, there in Boston. Uh, he's looking for stuff like, are they hurt? Are they sore? Are they tired? How are things at home? Is he doing all right at home? How's the wife? Hey, you have a busy night last night, a little bit hungover. That That one o'clock game is going to be kind of hard to hit. Um, and so he's kind of fishing around for that sort of stuff, but he gets involved uh, and then we don't know what happens to him. Uh, there's, there isn't a defined end year on Mr. Sullivan. So where he ended up, we're not exactly certain, but he's, his story is where we start to get the blurring between Burns and Rothstein and how there's so many different kind of gambling stories going on. Uh, that the players get kind of lost in the middle of it.
0: Rudy, what jumps out at you from Kevin Ty? Roadhouse. It's Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah. He's the owner of the bar in Roadhouse. He hires uh, Dalton uh, to come and clean the yeah. clean everything up. Not only the bar, but the town. And let's face it, Dalton did it. Ripping out throats and everything. I
1: didn't IMDB for that. <laughs> 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 I was like, Roadhouse. Roadhouse.
0: Uh, we see some kids bothering Buck every time he goes home. They're annoying. Uh, this is when we come across a Lefty saying, "If you've got Eddie, you've got me." We meet Abe Attell. I know that Abe Attell had all charges dismissed. Is that uh, he's played by? I don't have anything on on Michael Mantell who plays Abe Attell. But uh, I have here that his charges were dismissed. Jeff, you got anything on Abe Attell?
2: Abe Attell um, is, you know, kind of finds his way into the into the world of gambling based on his original career as a boxer. Um, when you're watching the movie, there's a little bits you'll hear where they'll refer to him as the little champ, um, in that he's a you know, I, I don't know exactly the, the weight class that he would have been in, but he was you know, kind of a lightweight featherweight um, in, in that kind of bracket there. But towards the end, he starts talking about throwing fights and which ones he was honest for and which ones he didn't hear. But um, I was particularly taken aback that A. Battelle, despite his involvement, or I guess according to the courts, his non-involvement, but he is actually an inaugural member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, so, so he and he talks about that in in the movie where he's like, "I was champion. Can't nobody take that away from me?" Uh, and so that kind of starts the fracturing between Attell and Arnold Rothstein, um, whom Attell had worked for
0: arnold rothstein played by michael lerner i did not need the imdb for this guy rudy but jeff what do you got on arnold rothstein
2: rothstein is like one of the biggest names in in the kind of the the gambling underworld of in the teens and into the into the 1920s here um they uh the, the, I don't really talk much about the Jewish mafia that existed in some of the major cities here. And Rothstein found himself as the heads of, like the head of the Jewish mafia in New York City to, to kind of go along with the Purple Gang in Detroit, who was also kind of ran the Detroit underworld there. Um, Rothstein lived until 1928, ironically enough, when he was murdered, uh, because he had uh, alleged gambling debts of and of the person who was doing the shooting demanded that he pay up and ironically enough Rothstein said that he was not going to pay those gambling debts because the poker game that they were playing was fixed and so kind of ironically point enough about that
0: Rudy Michael Lerner
1: Michael Lerner um once again amazing character actor uh I always remember him as the um, the boss and elf that yells at uh, James Caan mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. about uh, finishing uh, these pages. He also, fun fact, another trivia thing, played Mayor Ebert in Godzilla in
0: mm. I think it
1: was 1999 mm-hmm. or 98 Godzilla. Yeah, Mayor Ebert is a slam against. Ebert of Sisquil and Ebert, because the director did not like him as a critic, and so made him uh, kind of like this good for nothing character in Godzilla. So, I mean, this actor is versatile, but you know him from everything.
0: You know him from an episode of MacGyver. You know him from an episode of A Team. But what I know him from is from Harlem Nights with Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Oh, you <laughs> shot you you, got, you shot me in my pinky toe. <laughs> <laughs> harlem knights check it out if you haven't kids uh okay so this funny thing is they get we get to the t- the train trip now jeff and the team is on the train and it's like i likened it to an episode of Survivor just before they have to go to tribal council because they're all running around talking to each other, trying to find out who's with who and what's on what's and ifs, is it real? And is it real for the same money they've heard? And everybody's just talking uh, and everything like that. And Joe is staring at a candle go.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was, that was a story. And uh, I, from what I, I can't find anything that dissuades that I, I would, count that as believable that he would there, the scene is he's in a he's in a dark room and he has got one hand over his over one eye and is staring at the light of a candle um, that's when swede risberg supposedly comes in which is that's not true risberg didn't come in if anybody it was probably lefty williams that was talking to him because lefty and joe were very close um but yeah he stares at this candle and Rizberg kind of looks at him and goes, what are you doing, Joe? He's like, looking at a candle. He's like, well, uh, what do you do after a while? And he goes, I do the other one. <laughs> and he's just, so as a matter of fact, like, I, just, I do the other one. But yeah, I, I have not found anything to say that that was not true. So I'll, I'll, I will put it in the pile of, all right.
0: When they get they get to Cincinnati, there's definitely a feeling of, nothing's for sure like it seems like there's only a couple of people that are 100 percent in there's a lot of people that are like 80 percent in there's some that are like i don't want anything to do with it or maybe i do or you don't really know and it's like uh there's gonna be some backstabbing to vote who goes off the island that's what i feel like at this point uh because Ring- there's,
2: there, there's a lot of question about like who's like what is the actual number is it just the first game is it the first two is it the whole series yeah because there's so much going on there there's a lot of confusion
0: so we uh here's ring lardner and he's played by john sales and this is john sales movie so i believe he's the director of this movie and has a lot to do with this movie and he is he's one of the guys that wears that hat in the beginning that makes me buy it off of Amazon. And, uh, what do you know about ring Lardner?
2: Jeff. So ring Lardner uh, is, uh, is one of the writers there he's in the movie. They portray him and Hugh, Hugh Fullerton as the two writers who are going to kind of break the, break it all down. And the, the truth of it is Hugh Fullerton Is definitely one. Lardner is not. The other guy that's working with Hugh Fullerton is Christy Matthewson, the pitcher from the New York Giants. Those are the two that are circling in their scorebook about the plays that they are they find kind of fishy. Um I I think they put Ring Lardner in. Um you know, he is a writer of the time, sure, but I think the story that I heard was that the director looked a lot like Ring Lardner. um, and so they they put them, uh, they kind of added him into the, into the sequence here. Uh, Lardner, there is stories of him talking to the, talking to players and feeling a strong sense of betrayal uh, at what happened. You know, every, there's always the rumors, but when they found out that it really happened, a lot of people were just absolutely brokenhearted about that. And Lardner was one and uh, said that he never wrote honestly um, about sports and ever again, not to the extent that he was before.
0: Yeah, they I, I, I did see that and I did not see that emotion come through in the character development in the movie where he was uh, hurt and so disappointed by it. So that didn't actually come through in the movie. Uh, you feel the same.
2: There's one scene. there's one scene where there's the scene where he talks to Eddie Seacott and he's showing him the new ball and saying like, you know, Seacott's like, the ball's going to jump off like a rabbit on this one. And Lardner's like, I need to hear it from you. Is the game level? And Seacott says, yeah, it's level. We just played bad today. And Lardner's like, okay, I believe you. And then Seacott plays, I think it was game four and just is awful. And you see Lardner kind of just look down, just goes, you lied to me, Eddie. I think that's that's about as close as you get. Maybe when more, he
0: maybe when he sings, better. maybe when he sings on the train.
2: <laughs> I'm forever blowing ball games. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that is documented. That's there's that is said that uh he got drunk and uh, came out saying I'm forever blowing ball games, and the guys just sat there and watched him. Like nobody shut him up. It's just it just watched him sing.
0: So they're getting ready. Uh, what do you? Oh, Rudy, what do you got on John Sales?
1: Uh, John Sales wanted to have a, a a role as a player in this, a minor role as a player in this, but felt by the time production had started and everything that he was too old. And uh, I, uh, you know, and we talk about this movie, and there's a lot that happens in this movie in a short amount of time, and he has to cram so much history and so many real factual events he was contractually obligated to keep the movie in under two hours so knowing that i'm like okay so this is why we're jumping sometimes this is why they're taking some artistic liberties and they're not really developing stuff so you know i've i enjoyed his performance and and i think it uh given to what he had to work with i think he did an okay job
0: wow i really value your opinion on that and you're wrong uh, so Bucky and the kid, uh, the manager kid are on the field as Cincinnati. Nobody's on the field. It's just them. Uh, Bucky's probably doing some visualizing before the game. And he has a talk with the manager, Jeff. I get a feeling from the manager kid Gleason at this point that he knows something's up. He just, he's just trying to block it out but I feel like he's onto it the whole time.
2: He's onto it. And a lot of other people are onto it also. I mean, there's, there's a book out. um, I think it's called the original curse, uh, but it's, it's one about the the thought that the 1918 world series was fixed. The one that the, I think the red Sox one, but there's, there's, you know, rumors running around there that, games are being thrown there's all players from around the league have been kicked out you know been banned for life themselves because they were found to be throwing games and so I think there there is a little part of Gleason that thinks there's something going on but again the idea that this could be pulled off you know a you know logistically could be pulled off but b like morally and psychologically like you work forever to get to the World Series, you know, never mind the fact that the White Sox won it two years ago. You know, if some is good, then more is better. So, you know, the, the thought and the and the the other thing, and we talk about this in vintage baseball, is that baseball was seen as the healthy, clean alternative to other, you know, more devastating, nasty sports like boxing and horse racing because what do you see all the time in boxing and horse racing gamblers so the thought was like if any there's any thought of there being gambling we're getting rid of it we're ripping the band-aid off and it's gone uh, and so leeson may have his suspicions but the idea that that it could it could happen and then it would happen to his own team i i think that's something that he finds very hard to rectify
0: the thing you find in horse racing and boxing is horse tranquilizers. Uh, they go to the, uh, Eddie Seacott sees his money under his pillow. There's warmups before game one. Uh, Joe says he doesn't want to play in this game. This has got to be a historic moment. There's got to be a lot on this, Jeff. What do you got?
2: Uh, this is probably not true. This probably didn't happen. Uh, there's thought that Jackson, you know, has guilt that he doesn't really, again, going back to the whole, like Jackson is ignorant and doesn't know what's going on. Uh, but the, the idea of Jackson sitting on the bench going, I'm not going to play and tell, you know, tell the old Roman, tell Comiskey that I'm not going to play. And Gleason goes, you know, you'll play Jackson. Like there, that's probably a story that was created for the sake of Hollywood there. Um, Sons but yeah, majors. I mean, there's. I I would probably venture to say that the story itself is was created for the sake of the movie. Um, Jackson probably has guilt, but that particular scene I, I would hesitate with.
0: Uh, there's a pregame speech, the usual. I think the manager's on to him. Uh, Rothstein comes into a, what I refer to as a baseball bar. This is obviously a place the gamblers are going to, to gamble. I've never seen any place like this. Uh, Rudy, before we get the actual, uh, answer from Jeff, what do you think this place is that he goes into where all the people are listening to, they have the baseball scoreboard up there and everything.
1: I think it, I think it's like a, I feel like it's a sports bar I've seen, like things like uh in i think it was like i don't know what it was like the greatest game ever played or something it's a bunch of guys standing around a scoreboard waiting for somebody to like change the score manually i feel like this is an early sports bar i loved the the moving of the little the little base runner to first base those things like so you can get updates i thought it was pretty cool
0: okay here's a real answer jeff <laughs>
2: Um, I mean, it, it could be a, a, a series of things. I mean, it could be a, I, I think a, a room of that size. I, I don't know if I would call a room of that size, like a bar, I would actually probably because it's got a, a ticker, it's got an actual stock ticker, that's what's relaying uh, all the information. And I would almost call it more like a messenger service or like, a, almost like an open kind of city hall area, that maybe just so happens to serve alcohol at some point. Um, but Yeah. I mean, it's got a stock ticker. It's got the big display board. There was a huge one in Brooklyn, uh, that they would use as well. Um, and that's, I mean, that's how you would get the, the live information. I mean, the stock market and the sending electron or electric signals, you get those messages almost instantaneously. Um, and so it was the, the best way prior to radio, uh, which is just about to kick in. Um, and be an ex like the form of media here. But yeah, what you see in the movie is the, that's the most live up-to-date sports, you know, receiving that you get there.
0: So uh, Rudy, what Jeff did there is say every word possible to um, go against what you said, but say what you said at the same time. So what's a sports bar? Three points for Rudy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a
2: long-winded way to say I don't know.
0: Seika <laughs> <laughs> has a signal if the fix is in, and that's to hit a, that's to hit a batter, and that's the only reason Rothstein shows up at this place is to make sure that that that's going to happen. Is there anything more to that story than he just simply hits a batter to let him know the fix is in? Jeff, let
2: me grab my notes on that. I want to make sure I, I get this. Uh, okay, but, 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 yeah I'm, I'm pulling up the saber thing because i want to i want to make sure um talk amongst yourselves
0: uh so anyway you know, in our, go ahead rudy
1: <laughs> uh you know this makes me think i'm probably missing some opportunities to monetize some capital losses at the world tournament if anybody wants to talk to me about fixing some games let me know i want to you know, we crapped the bed a, a number of times at the World Tournament. I might as well make some money for the club.
0: In order to monetize your your play at the World's Tournament, you have to be in a position to be able to to win and lose, and you're not in the position to do <laughs> both of those things. So, sorry. Well, you know, <laughs> put it
1: out there so
2: you
0: can do that. Jeff, do you still need us to fill?
2: Uh, no, I, we're good. Yeah, it's it, it is kind of kind of an accepted kind of s- statistic here. It's more like Sabre's talking about like the subsequent at bats, you know what happens uh, afterwards there. but yeah, I mean that was kind of the that that was the thought of, you know, you hit plunk the first guy and that lets everybody know the signal is on here. Uh, the kind of the the origin story is this whole thing was, in the movie, Seacott goes to Comiskey and is asking for a, a $10,000 bonus for winning 30 games, despite the fact that he only won 29. Um, and then his argument is, well, you you had me benched for five starts at the end of the season there. I would have won two of them. You owe me that bonus. Comiskey says, you know, 29 is not 30, Eddie. You will get what you deserve. Um, Chances are that meeting probably didn't happen uh, as well as the fact that Seacott actually did have a chance to pitch with a a 30th win, but ended up taking the loss on it. Uh, So uh, Seacott, if anybody is like the second in command to Chick Gandil, it's probably Eddie Seacott. Um, He's the one who's kind of looking at, he wants to buy a big farm in Southeast Michigan and wants to provide for his family for the future. And so, uh, yeah, I think he's, he's an active member and would have tried to cooperate as best as possible.
0: Something that happens in the gameplay is, uh, whenever there's a good play made, uh, the guys that are really in, in it are staring down the guys who are making good plays. I don't believe this happened for a second. I, I think, (laughs) I think everybody played their game and everything and they, they, if if they had intentions of, of losing the game, which some of them did, uh, I don't think the idea is I'm going to go out there and suck and, <laughs> and we're just going to lose. I think the idea is I'm going to look as good as possible with us losing. And I don't mm-hmm. think they portray that very well as every time there's a good play, somebody's getting upset and – Jeff, do you agree? With yeah,
2: that? in the, in game one, um, as uh, Weaver makes this beautiful diving catch and uh, to throw a guy out, and uh, Felch makes a great catch in center field, and uh, they kind of look to Lefty, who's on the bench, and Lefty goes, "Nobody wants to look bad. Seacott's going to have to do this all by himself," uh, and that's the truth because you don't want to act so bad. That people are like, because remember there, there is again, the suspicion that there's a fix going on. And so if you in turn start like, oh, there there's a fix going on and then the ball gets hit right to you and you just let it go right past you. Like maybe there is a fix on. And so there are ways to try to make yourself look bad. And I think I'm about to set myself up for a joke here, but there are ways to make yourself look bad mm-hmm. accidentally. As opposed to, uh, you know, intentionally muffing something.
1: Been doing it for years. No, just... no, I mean, that was the thing that stood out to me. I was like, it felt like to me that all of these bad things were happening in like the first inning. And I'm like, guys, it's a nine inning baseball game. What Spread it out. You don't have to like blow it in the
2: first inning. So
0: one yeah. thing that's for sure. Yeah,
2: sometimes sometimes that's the signal. That's that's to let them know. I like, guess this is the kind of game that it's it's going to be.
0: One thing for sure is Ray shock is pissed and he has his red ass on for the rest of this series. That man is angry and should have died of a heart attack on the field by game six. Uh, So they lose game one, nine to one and everybody that's in on this thing at this point feels so good that everything is going so fine. Uh, They go to game two lefties out there. Uh, like I said, Ray shock is ticked. Uh, lefty is throwing meat up there. Uh, everybody's getting all they can. They, uh, I don't like Joe Jackson's portrayal. <laughs> I've written down. Here. <laughs> I don't know how many times I wrote that down. Oh, and shock got a double, uh, cause shock is playing. Uh, and then there's a mannequin thrown from a plane. Uh, There's a, (laughs) there's a fight after they lose four to two. There's a fight in the tunnel after the game. Uh, shock throws the worst punch in movie history. Uh, yeah, they're really, I think the, the pressure of now the guys who are not in on it know who the guys are that are in on it and they're just clashing right now. Is that right, Jeff? um yeah
2: i mean shulk i mean shalk is pissed you know because you know lefty williams you know shulk is arguing in the movie that lefty crossed him up you know, you crossed up the signals shulk is asking for a curveball and lefty is throwing it straight and not very hard at that um and so shulk is more mad like he's he's asking williams to do this thing in the game and lefty's just not doing it and Shalk's like, you know, what are you doing, man? Like you'd never do this during the regular season. Why are you doing it now? Um, And yeah, I mean, Shalk is a very, you know, he's a very intense player, absolutely intense player, but he puts a lot of pressure on himself to, to be as good as he can. So, yeah.
0: There's a, The next scene is taken directly out of Clue as people are knocking and running in and out of hotel rooms. So much knocking, so many doors opening and shutting, and the chaos is happening in the hotel. We go to game three, and that brings us to Dickie Kerr, uh, played by Jace uh, Alexander. Jeff, tell us about Dickie Kerr, the starter for game three.
2: Dickie Kerr... um they, they refer to him as a, as a busher or like a bushly guy, just somebody who isn't very good. And they're kind of carrying him through, which is unfortunate. He's, he's a rookie. It's 1919 is his rookie year. Um, You know, it seems like he has like kind of the energy and passion that, you know, any, any rookie would and pitches extraordinarily well. He wins game three, he wins game six, you know, the white Sox win three games in the series and Dickie Kerr, the number three guy, gets two of those wins. Um, what's what's I shouldn't say funny, um, but what's ironic about this is that you know he nobody suspects him. The guys say, you know, we're not going to win for him. We're not going to play for him. When he wins game three, I I don't have the final score in front of me. I think it's a low it's low score. Th- it's game. three to nothing. Three, I say he pitches a shutout. I remember. Um, but he pitches this shutout and this is where all the gamblers who, all the money that was supposed to go to the players, they're instead betting on the game themselves, hoping to multiply it for themselves. Well, everything that they got from the players was we ain't going to play for, for Kerr, you know, Kerr is nothing, you know, he ain't, he's not much of anything. Like when Kerr pitches the, you know, one of the games of his life, the thing of it is, you know, he's playing honestly, he's playing fairly, um, after the 1921 season, Comiskey sends him a contract. Kerr turns it down, wants more money. Comiskey doesn't give him more money and suspends him until 1925. Oh, my
1: God.
2: The, the guy, loses, guy loses four years of his career, all because of this reserve clause. That's a big part of baseball. You know, It's a big thing that Kurt Flood fought against in the late 60s, early 70s, which gave birth to modern free agency. Um, before that if you didn't like the contract, it didn't matter. Your rights were still owned by the team. They could trade you, but if they really wanted you, then they would just let you sit down and wait it out until, you know, whatever time came. So, uh, so it's unfortunate that Kerr was like the only honest pitcher the honest starting pitcher, the White Sox had. And two years later, he's going through exactly what the other guys were doing too. <laughs>
0: Rudy, what do you got on Jace Alexander?
1: Uh, bit parts here and there. Uh I think uh he was he was played a, a bit part in the movie Clueless. Um uh, and yeah, that's pretty much the one that jumped out to me for him.
0: I know Jace Alexander from a little ditty called the Jody Arias Dirty Little Secret documentary movie where uh you know, Jody Arias she killed a dude in the shower while taking his picture at the same time. Let's not let's not downplay the difficulty of murdering somebody with a knife and taking pictures at the same time. That takes a, a tremendous amount of skill. Uh <laughs> and that C cut's gonna be the starter for game four. Buck Weaver tells his wife don't don't tell your wife. That's don't Rudy. Normal people should not tell their wives these things. I
1: was about to be like, i tell my wife.
0: I know. Tell her everything. You probably just make some stuff up just so you have something to talk to her about. You sicken me. I just like talking to her. Uh, There's a part here where Eddie and Buck push each other on the field because Eddie makes an error. I don't think that happened. That's probably not historically accurate, but let's go to our expert, Jeff Kozlowski. Jeff!
2: I don't know if there's there's something to say that there was a physical altercation, but Seacott definitely made errors that definitely told people, like, yeah, this guy's in on it, too. Um, yeah, him and Gandalf, I think, and it was either this game or maybe Gandel's was in game five, but... Um, yeah, when Seacott makes the the throwing error or, or cuts the ball off when he makes when he makes the cutoff play and then makes a bad throw, um, that was kind of like the the death knell of Eddie Seacott. Like, which is and and a side note, like when you don't sell, you know don't talk to your wife, there's a little continuity error um, because um, when when Buck is talking to his wife, he he refers to him as Eddie Seacott. Seacott, you yep. He calls them Sakat. and then in the very next scene, when they get to the game, he calls him Seacot. So I don't, I don't know why there's a, you know, transitionary there, but
1: in a bad Chicago accent.
2: In a bad <laughs> Eddie Sakat. So,
0: sometimes these actors like to try an accent in certain scenes, and then just forget that they tried it in other scenes. Maybe that's what it was. I think Rudy's right on that. Speaking Six more points ac- for Rudy.
2: Speaking of accents. Um, speaking of accent, so I don't know if you're going to mention Nancy Travis at all, Lefty Williams's wife.
0: Yeah. Excuse me. Um, Didn't we talk about her already? She was so, in "So I Married an Axe Murderer."
2: That's a fantastic movie.
0: Did I not? Yes.
2: But anyway, she has a she's got a Southern accent. But truth be told, like Lefty Williams's wife in real life was from Utah and would not have had that accent. That- so. Even and though she checks out. She has a she has a very sweet accent. It's a very nice
1: Claude, Claude, Claude.
0: Well, <laughs> I didn't in, in real I don't, life she would not have had. I don't see it in my notes, but I know that Nancy Travis is in my notes somewhere. Oh, there it is. Lefty's wife, Nancy Travis. So I married an axe murderer. Hid. Hid. No, oh, that's a really good movie.
2: <laughs> Isn't she in like man of the house now? The new Tim Allen show? Yep.
0: Oh yeah yeah. Yeah, she is. I never saw that show, but yes. Um This is great. Okay, we move on. Uh Saka- <laughs> is uh, uh, <laughs> No, I'm past that. We're at game 5. Lefty starts. Uh the score of game 4, by the way, was 2 to nothing. Uh and then the game the score of game 5 was like a 5 to nothing. I think they really had to come out and show that they weren't going to give a crap and lose. Uh, That's exactly right. So game four was two to nothing. Game five was five to nothing. Uh, This is another one of those games Jeff mentioned earlier. Lefty had three losses, so this is one. The kids are fighting with each other because I think the kids know at this point, in the movie anyway, that something's going on. They're fighting with each other, and they fight better than the players did in the tunnel earlier. Uh, There's a train ride, and this is when uh, Laudner sings that song. Uh, Laudner, uh, born in Niles, Michigan. Jeff, where's Niles? Uh, West side, I think. West side! Uh, Game (laughs) six. Uh, Game six is going to come down to a score of five to four. The White Sox are actually going to win that game. Uh, Chick gets a hit. And wins the game. And uh, I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know if his his ego wouldn't let him make it out. Uh, it didn't look, probably because uh, Merle Dixon isn't the greatest athlete in the world, but it didn't look like he was trying that hard and got a single. His through swing
1: the... suggested he was trying to hit a purposeful ground ball. Like, he swung down on that ball, but hit a gap.
0: Do you know anything about this hit, Jeff?
2: The by this point, there is question about um, the money. What money is going to be coming in? Because they've been promised and promised and promised, and the money is not coming in. Uh, for example, um, Lefty Williams was supposed to get ten thousand dollars. He ended up getting five. Uh, like everybody except Eddie Seacott was was underpaid by the gamblers from what they originally promised so nobody aside from secot actually got their full 10. and so to go back to our previous point about the guys don't know exactly how many games are supposed to be is it the full series you know i'm getting kind of tired of this i'm getting tired of being jerked around here so you know let, let's actually win some games and really tell the other uh, tell the gamblers here like you better you better pay up.
0: Uh, Game seven comes along. Eddie Sakut is almost benched uh, before the game because the manager knows what's going on, Uh, and he's not. Uh, I think basically because he tells the manager that he's screwed if he doesn't get to play, and the manager makes the bad decision of letting him play. He should have just benched him. Uh, there's plenty of pitchers that were not in on this thing. Uh, then you get a plain good baseball montage. There's like three montages at the end of this movie. and uh, But now they're playing good baseball. There's a shine ball that gets thrown by Sucut. I'm just going to call that the rest of this. <laughs> uh, game, uh, they win that one four to one. Uh, any of you, I just went through the last, few games in a hurry. Do you guys have a note you want to talk about from any of those games before we move on?
1: No, I'm good. No, I feel good about this.
0: Uh, Game eight, lefty pitches. There is a gangster montage that involves a lot of phone calls and some guns. Things are getting serious now because the White Sox just won two in a row. So everybody who's got their money involved in certain things are starting to get worried. Uh, about things, uh, then uh, a gentleman approaches Lefty and tells him that if he doesn't lose the game, his wife's going to die. Uh, that escalated quickly. Uh, all their <laughs> all their uniforms, as Jeff referred to earlier, are dirty. They are real dirty in the lineup for this game. Uh, and then uh, right from the get-go, the uh, Lefty uh, gives up four immediately like immediately. So he has a feeling he's not going to make in the game very long. He's got a very short leash. So he just goes right to work and giving up runs. Uh, and the fans, when he's taken off the field, they're throwing all of their programs on the field, uh, much like free record night at Comiskey Park years later. Uh, was it records they were throwing on the field on beer night? Disco night? What happened with that, Jeff?
2: That was disco Did-
0: disco demolition night <laughs> disco demolition night oh yeah they're throwing disco records on the field anyway it was a mess somebody's got to clean all that up uh and and joe and so then joe jackson's finally back in the movie and it hits a home run that's meaningless because they're not in the game and the final score of that one is 10 to 5 so the series is over the white Sox lose and now it's time for media montage there's a Uh, a montage of reporters talking to everybody. This is, Jeff alluded to some of this earlier with medicine balls and stuff. And they all talk. And this is when you get three, according to the movie, you get three confessions uh, eventually on this. And one of them was Joe Jackson, who writes an X because he can't write. How uh, accurate is this part, Jeff?
2: All right, so we've got a lot to unpack in this sequence because there, there's like fundamental things about the movie and the sub in the book uh, that when you dig really deeper, and one of them is the death threat, is the Lefty Williams' wife death threat. Um, that is not true. Uh, Elliot Azenoff admitted to making that part. So uh, unfortunately, that lefty williams gave up not because he was trying to protect his wife but uh because he just was in on the fix um the confession so you've got uh seacott jackson and i forgot the other name. shoot the 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 confessions do happen the uh the the fundamental thing about the about the confessions is the waiving of immunity um that they are they're told that they are by signing it they're also waiving their immunity to this uh in the idea that they are coming totally clean totally honest about what is happening with this and that's going to be a major part you know going on in the future um but yeah they get these they get these uh waivers of immunity jackson does not have his wife with him which is which is important, sure, back to the earlier part, that Jackson is, you know, oftentimes Jackson would have his wife there to read him some of like his contract and important details. Uh, she's not here for this one. And so Comiskey and his lawyers are basically telling Jackson, like, look, we know you did it, sign this and we will take care of you. And uh, so there becomes, there becomes that. So uh, yeah. Jackson is involved. He, he does. In fact, as far as I know, he signs an X or you know, even if he doesn't, it's it's very much he's kind of pushed into making sure that he signs it.
0: Uh, this is where you get a couple of things you get. Uh, you find out that Charles Comiskey's nickname is commie. Rudy, is that a good nickname to have?
1: That's not a good nickname
0: this is also where you have a kid yelling on the steps of the courthouse say it ain't so joe uh is this jeff is this historically accurate
2: no no this was something for the book uh
0: and then the players uh come into the courtroom and they come into a loud pop Uh, lots of fanfare and everything. And I actually have an audio recording of what it sounded like when the players came into the courtroom for the first time. Did you hear that? No. How did you not hear that? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, the people that listen to this episode will get a treat because they'll hear it. Uh, it was the Hulk Hogan's theme song. Uh, <laughs> no, so... <laughs> it wasn't. Shut up. <laughs>
1: Good.
0: Uh, this is where we find out the com- the confessions disappear. I believe that's accurate. Is that not Jeff?
2: Sort of. So it's like it, it's hard to say. Like it's a confession uh, as far as like what it's what it specifically entails and all this. Uh, but these documents that the players signed where they are essentially admitting their role in this have in fact disappeared. The, what's, what's difficult to say with certainty is, was anybody surprised by this? And what we kind of come to realize is that these, these documents were taken. We're not sure by who. There's talk that it's Comiskey. There's talk that it's Rothstein. There's talk that it's Comiskey for Rothstein because of the whole underworld thing. But people knew that they were gone and instead used like previous testimony. So, so yeah, they were, they were stolen, but it's not in the sense that like, oh, well, this just destroys my case. You know, that no, they, they kind of knew ahead of time there. <laughs>
0: So uh yeah so long story short they all get acquitted uh I I realized at this at this point of the movie that this was not a movie about Joe Jackson but was a movie about Buck Weaver uh just <laughs> if you watch the movie he's in it way more than Joe Jackson and uh, uh can we... Go ahead Rudy
1: I I thought it was funny when Buck Weaver's like before the verdict is read, he's like, I just want to state that, you know, I wasn't a part like he's distancing himself from these his teammates, and I'm not them, not me. But when it's not guilty, oh, he's hugging everybody mm-hmm. and they're hugging him. I would have punched him square in the nose and be like, What? Yeah, well,
0: they probably <laughs> knew, the knew boys, that was true. All of a sudden. They probably knew that was true. So I don't think they were uh I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I I agree.
2: They're yeah, he does not, in, in reality, he does not have this, you know, this speech, the thing that he does, there's nothing out loud, there's nothing audible that, where he says that he does. Now, in later instances, he has said, yeah, I, I didn't take any money from this, you know, I, I wasn't on the meeting, but I told him no. And so this is probably some creative, creative license that's being taken here. <laughs>
0: So uh, they're all acquitted, but they all are kicked out of baseball, like Jeff mentioned earlier. They all a lot of them, most of them play during the 1920 season until they are all banished from the game of baseball. and uh, And then the movie uh, will end with um, shoeless Joe Jackson playing in New Jersey in 1925 with Buck in the stands. Uh, topping him in his acting performance of getting more time than making him more important <laughs> than Joe Jackson, uh, talking about Joe Jackson in the stands with some fans, and uh, I found out that Joe Jackson went on to uh, own a successful dry cleaning business, and that's what he did after baseball. And Eddie Sakut and, and Swede, uh, they started an independent baseball team called the X Major League Stars Uh, and did that for years after they were kicked out of baseball. And, uh, Jeff, what do you got? What do you got on this end? End of this movie, the end of this story.
2: You know, the, the first thing that I remember going back to, to Rudy's point about, you know, Buck is like, I didn't do anything. I asked for a separate trial. I asked this and you all denied me. And uh, I think it's like Rizberg says, like "Sit down, Buck. Nobody cares about your batting average." Uh, throws this great line out there, and all of a sudden, it's "Not guilty!" Everybody's cheering, and then they they like start parading Joe Jackson on the chair, like they yeah. start hoisting him up, like he's this hero. Like they
0: didn't, you know, they didn't do Jack anything to, to for that to happen. Nobody even act like they liked it, him.
2: Exactly. And that's that's what makes this you know so so sad when we read the you know the, the Hornbaker book about Jackson like this this guy was just used and abused. You're telling me that now all of a sudden like Joe, you're a hero again, yay! Because but I mean at that time with the acquittal, the thought is, well, we're all gonna go uh, back to playing. That was kind of what Comiskey wanted. I mean Comiskey puts on this. I would call it a charade of how he is trying to clean up baseball. Um, But at the same token, he wants to make sure his guys get a not guilty verdict so they can go back to playing for him because he still owns them. It's the reserve clause in the contract. He still owns them. And so part of uh, Carney's book, Burying the Black Sox, is about like the cover-up and the whole cover. And a lot of this didn't come out. Those, conf- the, the signed documents there, they came out in 1924. They were found again. Uh, they were found because Joe Jackson was suing Comiskey for his World Series bonus. And Comiskey said, why should I give that to you? Uh, Jackson's like, because I was acquitted. I didn't do anything. I just didn't play as well even though I hit the only home run in the world series, I didn't play that well. And that's when Comiskey pulls out his this document says so like, really? Cause this says you, you did this. And that's how they screw Jackson out of, out of money like this. So I, I see them parading Jackson, that part gets me. Um, and then the, the whole thing, the, the idea of players changing their names and going on to outlaw teams. That's true. There is documentation of that. Um, it's after like, it's after kind of Kennesaw Landis gets wind of that and says like, Hey, if you want a future in major league baseball, you don't touch those guys. We we want them out. We want them done. We want nothing to do with them. And so Comiskey by getting Landis put in this position in a turn, kind of cost him his team and his team wouldn't really, I think had maybe one 500 season in the next decade. Um, so yeah, there's a, lot to unpack with that, that end sequence there. But uh, root- yeah, they did definitely change their name, though.
0: Rudy, your thoughts?
2: Uh,
1: My thought at the end of this film was the same thought at the beginning, the first like 10 minutes of this film. It's like unlikable people against an unlikable Comiskey. Like it was like, I was like, I, was sh- I should be rooting for someone, but I kind of don't like any of them some like except for Sakat um because like I mean the the way they established they tried to set up their team and they're all making fun of each other and talking about each other and and I'm just like yeah these kinds of guys guys are kind of a uh, not not good people but you know uh so was Kamiski apparently according to this movie so like it was an interesting movie. I I enjoyed I enjoyed because, you know, this is how I learned about the Black Sox scandal, the White Sox scandal of 1919 in 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 my youth. This is how this of dreams is how I learned about it. So uh, I think it's a if you do a little bit, if you don't take it as a historically accurate documentary of the actual uh, events, it's a it's a serviceable film. I liked it.
0: Oh, boy, that's we the giving... key you
2: right there is you don't, don't treat it like it's a documentary. You know? Yeah, it's it was it was a fine usage of two hours. There you go.
0: <laughs> OK, so I have to admit, I never saw this movie until last last uh, two weeks ago. So uh, it's like when I'm a baseball fan, I'm a movie fan, and I had never seen this movie. Uh, I never even saw clips. I never even passed it through channel surfing. Never. So maybe that's why I'm bitter. Not a good movie. Uh, so we we see on uh, the wall behind Mister Kozlowski, I see five baseball bats. So we're going to rate this movie on a baseball bat system, Rudy. How many baseball bats do you give this out of? Oh, there's only four.
2: No, there's that's the fifth one is up there. Oh, that's oh, that's there the actual original one.
1: Oh wow! Uh, yes. I'm going to give this a solid. Uh,
0: don't give it half and bats. And half. No, Damn no, it. you don't All cut right. a bat in half
2: okay you know what i'm <laughs> to gonna be, say to be fair this one was broken at gettysburg <laughs> So it's kind of
1: 20s
0: stop making this I'm gonna difficult say, <laughs> I'm,
2: gonna, I'm gonna give it three three bats.
0: uh jeff how many bats are given this movie
2: um as a as a movie i'm i'm gonna give it since i can't give partials um maybe three bats but spray some pine tar on it uh, just because it's it's <laughs> it's a little sticky. No, three bats.
0: This uh, this movie gets two bats for me, uh, and it's lucky <laughs> to get that. Uh, it's a it's not a well done movie. Uh, although Rudy did say earlier they had to keep it under two hours, that did change things a little bit for me. Not a, with with all of the characters in this. With your your to get to know that many characters and to have a backstory, they just made it the Buck Weaver movie. So, yeah, uh, that's it for us. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you. Good to see you in the winter.
2: Sorry for talking as long as I did. No, that's what we wanted.
0: That's what that's the point. Yes, isn't that the point? (laughs) Okay, I'm pretty sure that's what we're doing here. Uh, Rudy, you still got three movies to get to. I got Rookie of the Year. It's gonna bleed over into season four whenever. No, no pressure. We got lives. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, Interviews, game shows, live action calling. Everything starts as season four gets off the ground next week. And uh, I don't think I have anything else uh, to say. Rudy, do you have anything to say and get us out of here?
1: I have nothing. I'm excited for season four, folks, for uh, the cougar, the barrel roller. I'm the small fox, and I'm telling you to keep it station to station. We'll see you out in the field. Recording stopped.
0: I love the end of The Incredible Hulk. You guys can't hear it, can you? You haven't been able to hear my board this entire episode, have you?
1: No, but you know what? It's not important that we hear it.
0: Uh, It just puts me in the right frame of mind. I should learn how to play this on a piano. As of right now, I can only play (laughs) the beginning of the Jaws theme.